welcome back to another episode of International Immersion, a podcast that seeks to capture the combined experiences of people, places, culture, traveling, current events, living abroad, and much, much more. This episode, this is going to be part two of our episode on Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, or API. And this one, we're going to continue on with where we left off in episode one and kind of touch into some other topics that have to do more with family and like and perception. So it's great to have the five, five of you back again for part two. I know the first part was interesting and we really got on a roll with a lot of interesting content and things we've learned in that in the first part was I learned a lot and I'm sure we all did. So I'm eager to explore further and into part two. So hope everyone's been well since our last episode and to kick it off, we were discussing many things. So continue on going into more of the family dynamic, which I think is interesting. A lot of people may have a lot of interest in learning about because I think whatever culture or place you're from, families is important. I know it is in my, my family, we're more of an Italian Irish of ancestry and family is very important, but Pretty much anyone I know, family is either the central unit or if not close to it. So the first thing I want to mention is how is the family structured and then viewed? Uh, hi, Sean. Uh, you know, I think with most Asian cultures, filial piety is a huge thing where we respect our elders. We give them a lot of prominence in the family. And so for me, for the Vietnamese culture anyway, Everything we do from how we serve our food to how we greet our family and our community, it all boils down to where you fall in line in that position. Um, The older you are, especially if you're a man, a male, right? They get the number one spot. And so you address them first, you serve them first. They get the best of whatever that you are offering. So, you know, for the Vietnamese culture, that is how the family is kind of structured. Within the sibling structure, the youngest is always usually the most spoiled and gets away with the the most things. And I don't know if that's an Asian thing. It might be just an across the cultural um, thing. But also in the Vietnamese culture, I want to say is that we are given nicknames or numbers. And for the, the parents, you know, they're always the number one. They're the parental unit they're number one and so if you're the oldest child you're you're called number two so you're always addressed as you know sister two or brother two or brother three four five six all the way down the line so that's one one thing about the family structure that i think is pretty interesting about the vietnamese culture very interesting that's how like that's kind of you don't think oh you know sibling one number two number three but (laughs) good for keeping track but that's kind of like oh I, i will also say is that it doesn't matter if you are let's say you're two years old right you can be called uncle and have a higher status or esteemed position than someone who is older than you because, you know, you may fall um, higher up in the hierarchy in the um, sibling line than the other person. So even though you're younger, you might have better position in the family. Kind so of a weird thing. so age, age by itself is not always a determining factor of like seniority or place. Exactly. You might have to call a three-year-old, you know, auntie (laughs) or something. Yeah. Honorable name like that. I would say that for in the Philippines and for my family in particular, it's probably more to do with age, not necessarily with um, sort of position, because I do have cousins or not cousins. I just I should I have nieces who are or not nieces aunties who are younger than me, but I wouldn't call them aunties. I, I would they would call me the equivalent of like ate, which is like an older sister. Uh, so I think it's more about age that defines sort of 
the the respect or not the respect but sort of where you fit within the family unit an extended family unit but once again I feel like I just I grew up Filipino but I wasn't Filipino um my parents were very liberal and very western so although I had an older brother they treated us fairly equally which I would say probably is not don't want to generalize but in in Filipino culture boys are prioritized or sort of given special treatment um, they have more options, access to do specific things, but my parents very much thought that my brother and I should be raised equally. So whatever my brother did, I did as well, or had the option to do. So I didn't necessarily have those sort of sorts of limitations based on uh, my gender. But I do notice some things like that when like living here in the Philippines, there are expectations for what sisters are supposed to do and what older brothers are supposed to do. But I can't necessarily speak to those because it's not what I experienced. Uh, but it, just as Amy mentioned, filial piety is very important. So no matter what your troubles are with specific people in your family, they are your family at the end of the day. So the expectation is that whatever your differences are, you're still loyal and you're still respect. You still look out for each other, even if you don't like your relatives or, or your, for example. So I've got to talk in broad strokes here because I think similarly, similarly to Angela, I think my personal experience isn't necessarily reflective of the stereotype or, or general uh, structure for Japanese families. So I, I do know that, as Malia has said, the nuclear family is idealized. You have the father who works, the mother who takes care of the home, and you have children. But I don't know if the children are ranked like in Vietnam. No, I mean, historically, it was always the firstborn son's responsibility to take over the family business. But that has not been part of the culture for such a long time. I'm, I'm sure it still exists. But in general, it's more about you get married, you have children. If you if you don't fall into those lines you're you're seen as different really yeah so speaking about this uh japan is ranked 120th in the world for gender equality and i see that every day it doesn't affect me personally because i am a foreigner and they kind of see me as an enigma but it makes me a bit sad because i have japanese women friends who are like my mom's age and they tell me about all of this stuff and they really like me because they think i'm really strong because i lecture everyone about feminism but i see that kind of stuff if you're not married by the time you're 30 you're like on the shelf or something yeah i guess similar to china but not to the same degree where you have leftover women right yeah uh, if the married, term they call it chengdu, yeah i think if you're 27 and not married then that they'll st- there, stamp that on you yeah there's a there's a definite pressure because a lot, lot of people seem to marry younger here mm-hmm. um you know a lot of them by our age are married but I've also seen that it's kind of like the U.S. too, because I have a friend who's my age. She's not married. She and her boyfriend broke up a while ago. She's not. She's a lot more Western, even though she's Japanese. And then I had students and stuff, and they're not all necessarily rushing to get married. Um, there's a lot more pressure here mm. and to do it when you're younger. And I guess I do have like a student friend who is my age and she got married recently, but we get asked all the time, like when we're going to get married. Yeah. And I'm just like, why is that any of your business? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's normal in Japan for a woman to be asked in a job interview, when are you going to get married? Are you going to have children? this, this, and that. And that kind of stuff is just like normal here. 
because the the woman needs to like have the children and i've also heard they don't give you drugs when you give birth here oh that would go over well here in the u.s for any of that oh boy yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, I, so, yeah that's but, grounds for lawsuits all types of things here in the u.s if you meant if you ask a woman that or anyone that had a job interview yes <laughs> yeah um so i've been asked before like when are you gonna get married blah 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 and i'm like i don't know like when i feel like it but what i've noticed from the schools i work at and stuff is that basically at the kindergartens all the people who drop off the kids are the moms i saw i walked past the kindergarten past the house and i saw one dad and then i would get a lot of adult women students uh during the day and they would tell me that they're homemakers and it didn't seem to like, it's kind of something they say proudly. In the US, I've seen people, it's kind of like bad to be like a housewife sometimes. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. You know, it's your, if, that, if that's what you wanted to do, then then that's what you do. Yeah, personal preference at the end of the day. Yeah, like um, if you want to stay home and take care of your kids, then that is your choice. You just need to be able to be given the choice. And I don't know if a lot of women here are given that choice because the man is the one who makes the bigger salary. Women are delegated to secondary roles in the office. They're not paid as much. They're the ones who have to clean everything. They're treated like they're not equals. And so I don't think it would be easy for a woman to do the working mom thing here. Not to say that it's not possible, because I know some women who are married and they work and stuff, but I'm not sure if they have kids or if their kids are maybe adults now. I grew up in the in the time that getting into the wartime. So, well, when I was young, my family was a normal family. But what I noticed the difference between my family and the other family is that my mom instead of being a housewife, she's more like a breadwinner. She's more like uh, the person who go out and earn the income to, you know, to support the family. Because my mom is, you know, she had more business idea than my dad. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference that I noticed, but it's not general in Cambodia. So that's why I, you know, it, it's hard for me to, to speak for the Cambodian country. But um, that's that's how I observe. But also, um, just like in Vietnam and other country in Asia, you know, we uh, our family support each other. It's very close knit, and we depend on each other and we love each other. So the family unit is a, the the backbone of our um, of our unit. It's it's very strong, very good. So mm-hmm. when when I left home to attend college that was far away from home. I was like a fish taking out of the the water. So that's how I felt. But normally the family dynamic, the family um, support each other is very strong. But yeah, now, I think it's like yeah. that in Japan too. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now that we, mo- uh, all of my siblings are all in the United States, we still support each other. We don't call each other all the time. But whatever we need, we know exactly who to reach out to. And we always get the support. Yeah, yeah. There's a big family support system in Japan. So like some of the positives of the family is that I think this is probably typical in Asian cultures is that like, you know, you take care of your parents as they get older. I have a student slash friend here who 
his mom is like 90 something and she lives in Osaka. And this is when I was in Nagoya and he'd go back all the time to take care of her. And another friend of mine, her mom broke her leg or something recently. So she went back to Nada to help take care of her mom. And in Nagoya, at least, where it's a lot more conservative and traditional. So I'm not sure if it's the same in Tokyo. People lived with their families Mm -hmm. until they got married. So there was like a lot of people my age, if they weren't married yet, then they were still living with their families. So they live with their families up until like they get married or if they have to move for their job or if they go to university, like in a different city. I think there's something else I wanted to say. Yeah, I have definitely noticed that for a lot of you know, Chinese, a lot of different people from Asian countries or backgrounds, they tend to live with their, their families through college or even into their early professional career until they move out. And I think it, there's, it's family, but also I think in many cases, it's also economics because I know like in China, housing prices, the cost of living has gone up so much and, other, and like Korea is the same. So there's a multitude of factors at play. Yeah, I feel like that in the US a bit too. Oh, I remember yeah. it, but I wanted to say, but the wives here control the money. So yes, the I've, I've heard that. And it's like in China as well. It's like, when the, you know, the husband gets paid, he gives it to the wife and she takes care of everything with that. Yeah, the finances. I feel like my mom does that for my dad. <laughs> I would say, sorry, just to add a little bit more about to Malia's comment about women handling the money in Japan. I, like, I feel like in Asian culture, it's very easy. It's a lot easier for the man to sort of relinquish power in the home to the woman. So it's like maybe outside of the home, the man is is considered the head of the family. But as soon as like you step through the door, it's mom, like mom is boss. And what's what mom says goes, you know, like dad may have an opinion. It's an opinion. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a white American, but having dated a Chinese girl, I completely attest to that outside. She's very like, okay, Let's me do everything in the house. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Not in a controlling way, but it just takes control of the situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, something else that I just remembered. This is kind of sad. A lot of families get split up here. Um, transferring is a huge thing. Uh, people are transferred for their jobs all the time, and you can't refuse a transfer usually. So I've met families who... The dad lives in Tokyo and the family lives in Nagoya and every weekend he has to go back to Nagoya to see his family because I had one student and he's from Osaka but he works he worked in Nagoya and he had to go back every weekend to see his wife in Osaka. So a lot of families are also split up here too which I think is sad. And I also think it's hard on the dad because like his weekends, he can't relax at all. Like the work culture is so intense. And then he has to spend like his weekends, like traveling to go back to see his family, to help his wife take care of the family and stuff. So that's like another thing that is like really common here, I think. You think it's common? Yes, yeah, uh, I think it's related to the lifetime employment system that Japan implemented post-World War II, where you joined a company and you're in that company for life. Mm. Very different from the U.S., where people tend to move around quite frequently. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you're, you're expected to go over and above for your company, and in exchange, that you knew that you had job security for life. But that did mean that often the company would ask you to do a placement for four years in one place, and sometimes it didn't make sense to move your whole family across. And I think uh-huh. it's just uh, yeah connected to mm-hmm. yeah. But I think our generation, I've seen a lot of people like moving around jobs more. It's me about the younger generation doing that too. I think every place does that. Every generation complains about the next one and what they do or don't do. So it's a commonality, I think. So I'm a millennial and I don't understand Gen Z. <laughs> hey, 
uh, yeah, hey, we're I'm millennial as well, so I definitely I definitely have witnessed it, and I and I hear from it from time to time. <laughs> and that, and actually, so moving on, and this this next question I think is very interesting, and I'm actually quite curious to learn more about it myself. Is what are marriage and wedding traditions like in each of your you know in your each of your situations? And um, older people have complained. I, I know every not. culture weddings are big, but it's just I know there's so much variety in in terms of preparation, ceremony, procedure aftermath i don't know if we heard sarah's comment on family structure but maybe we can uh, loop that in on, on this question too but for the vietnamese uh, i think arranged marriages are still a thing and it's not necessarily you know two families coming together to um advance their position in life but i think it's more of a compatibility thing where you know two families are trying to find out you know, whether the, the snake and the, the monkey get along or whether personalities would, would mesh well. I think that's uh, something that I find very interesting about the Vietnamese culture. But, you know, typically with, with weddings, I know in, in the United States, it's a pretty elaborate affair and the bride will wear three different outfits. You know, she'll usually, if it's an Americanized wedding, she'll walk down the aisle in a traditional white wedding gown, American wedding gown. And then when you go to the reception, she'll change into two more outfits. And it's usually the Vietnamese ao yai or um, even a, a traditional Chinese bung sam, for example. And then she'll go into an evening gown um, to continue on with the celebration. But in Vietnam, there's still the, the whole ceremony of the, the tea. You know, if you spill the tea, then you're doomed for life. <laughs> Your marriage is gonna suck. Um, there's the whole dowry situation. There's a procession where, you know, the the groom side of the family brings presents and a roasted pig and all this other stuff to the to the bride side of the family. So it's a pretty elaborate thing. And uh, I know that superstition is something that we're very big on as well. And so it's interesting to, for me to sometimes hear stories about, oh, you know, you're this sign and you can't marry this other sign. And oh, there's also these five elements, which complicates things even further, right? Because you have the wood, the metal, the water, whatever, whatever element you are, that may not be compatible either and so yeah your your future sometimes hinges on what year and month you're born I would say that in the Philippines the weddings are a big deal I mean I think they're a big deal everywhere but once again it's it's really a bit like you know kind of molded around faith and religion so I think what's different most different about Filipino weddings is that um the cere- like the wedding ceremony itself is not just an exchange of vows it's a full mass uh so the wedding can be three hours long, like the, the, the mass can be three hours long. And the entire time the bride and the groom are up on the altar in front of the priest. It can be sometimes it's not great. Sometimes. Yeah, it's uh, so I mean, that's, that's a bit I think three hours is really they they don't do that anymore. Because I think people have evolved, evolved and adapted to modern ways of living and know that people will not want to attend a three hour wedding ceremony. Uh, but that is like, they, they do a full mass. Um, but other than that, I would say that Filipino wedding traditions are very Americanized. We were a colony of the US. So we also have to wear multiple dresses, um, the something borrowed, something blue, I'm missing something. <laughs> and there is one thing that we do, I don't know if it's so common in my generation, but it definitely was in my parents' generation, which is the first dance between um, the bride and the groom is called the money dance. So when you, when they dance at, for the first time as husband and wife, 
all of the guests are invited to put money on the bride's dress and the groom's uh, tux, kind of what you would do <laughs> at a strip club. So you just kind of like, put money. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's just a really funny way. And I want I remember an anecdote from one of my parents' friends, they were saying that when they got married, they were both like super, super broke because they were really, they were quite young at the time. And they said that after their money dance, they literally just took all the money off of their clothes and then gave it directly to like whoever was hosting the wedding. They were like, that was what we paid our paid for. Like uh, this wedding was for us, but at the same time it was like the guests paid for it, which I think is kind of what Asians try to do with weddings. They kind of try and make money out of them. I noticed that in Singapore, it's like they're re- they go down to like, how much am I spending on a plate per person? And then as a guest, you know, you have to give a red envelope and you have to give the equivalent of whatever they paid for your plate or more. So, I mean, that's different to the Philippines, but in Singapore in particular, it's really kind of like an enterprising situation. Oh yeah, it needs to. Yeah, it's all about the, how much money you make. And then when you go around the table and you, people will clink their glasses, you know, and that's a sign to, to which, you know, we don't do public displays of affection. So it's a huge deal to kiss in front of your guests. I think that in Japan that you have to give like $300. Yeah. So I told Callum we're never going to a Japanese wedding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because we are poor AF. <laughs> as far as... He's been to a Japanese wedding. I haven't, yeah, so he so... can tell it. So as far as... So I've only been to one Japanese wedding, which was my cousin's. And I can only remember some vague details. But I do remember there were at least a couple of outfit changes because it seems to be the case where, and I can't, obviously not for every wedding, but you have a Japanese ceremony and an English ceremony. And so you have a Japanese Shinto ceremony where we sort of entered a, a, I don't think it's a shrine, but like a specially prepared area where you had the Shinto religious ceremony, which was about 30 minutes. And they ran the ceremony. I didn't really understand a lot of the Japanese because it was very sort of archaic. But we, I do remember that they gave us sake in a, in a almost like a plate, and we we drank the sake. And then at the wedding itself, uh, at the reception, uh, it was yeah, essentially like any other wedding reception. Do they have dancing? I've heard they don't dance at Japanese. No, there's no dancing. Yeah, there, there's no dancing don't. or no party. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't really a party. It was a sit down meal, and you had sort of speeches from. Like, I guess this is a weird thing about Japan. Like, so this, you get speeches from your bosses, your boss. I, I, I guess because work culture is supposed to be so tied to your life that your boss will come and deliver a speech at your wedding is. Uh, yeah, that's definitely and, something you wouldn't think of in most no. weddings. I mean, that your boss may come if you're maybe also like somewhat friends or acquaintances outside of the office, but that's definitely different. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, definitely the money. Uh, it's Sanman, which is uh, approximately three hundred dollars. Every every guest is expected to pay that. Yeah, so you have to pay three hundred dollars, and there's no dancing. So why would we go? The food to celebrate <laughs> the union of two people that we like. <laughs> One thing, our in our old apartment in, in Nagoya, there was this like fake church, and I'm Catholic, and I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I'll still have like random Catholic moments, and I was like there's this fake church that they would use to get like their Western wedding pictures taken at. And I was like, this is blasphemy. <laughs> what are they doing? I'm so offended right now that they built this fake church to have this fake Western wedding. What's going on? <laughs> Do you remember that church? Yeah. Yeah. It was, 
obviously it probably wasn't consecrated or whatever the term is consecrated i said okay i said that right consecrated yeah, yeah. but it's it's weird how they do that because you see one of my students got married recently and they did like the formal japanese wearing and one of my friends got married to a japanese man and she has like the kimono and he has the man kimono and so like those pictures are really nice they look really cool Mm-hmm. Yeah. But $300, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Cambodia, the wedding is very dressy. The, the bride and groom, they dress up like prince and queen, uh, like prince and princess, a very, very high value. But, um, but here, I think some, some people... The Cambodian community, they still do that, but the Christian community, they don't do as much as a traditional uh, clothing. But it's still, it's very nice. People, all the bride, they, they are dreaming of wearing, wearing that clothes, at least just to take the picture. It's very nice. But the way that uh, the wedding come about is the groom, the groom family will go and propose the bride family that they want to get married. And all the expenses are paid by the groom side. That's the total opposite from United States. That's what I, I found out. So the, the, man, the man's family had to pay for everything, the food, the the cars, and everything, and uh, they spend a lot of time. They like two days right now. That's the summarized version. Two days before it was longer. <laughs> <laughs> they have all kind of ceremony, <laughs> and then there's a a, a party afterward. But uh, right now in United States, there's a condensed version. They just do everything in one day, but it's still a lot, a lot for for the wedding. <laughs> no, that, that's cool. That's cool. And yeah, I think you know, I I've been to I've been to weddings in the U.S. I've got, and I've been to, to a couple in China, and it's just uh, it's amazing to see just the how much comes out, and you can be exposed to so many different things. And you get to get a kind of an insight into tradition, the ancestry, the ceremony, what values and everything. And it, and also, of course, the food is amazing. You can try so many types of food as evolved, <laughs> specified heavily. And also just the, um, you know, the, the dresses, the, the type of clothing and the ceremony. That's It's all very interesting to me. And I think that you know, if you have a chance to go to a, a wedding ceremony outside of where you are or your culture or faith, it's, I definitely recommend it because you can learn a lot. And that leads us into the next thing. So naturally with, you know, mar- marriage traditions, the next most imp- important thing that follows that is, you know, what is important when raising a family or specifically your children, like, you know, values or what's, you know, what is important to be in taught or, you know, anything along those lines. You know, did I mention filial piety? <laughs> um, I feel it's going to be a little bit of a re- recap. That's my theme. <laughs> I, you know, Preston, my son, he's my one and only, he's 12 and he's half Vietnamese, half Swedish, right? He's Scandinavian and he is <laughs> all about, 
I teach him the balance between the Western and the Eastern cultures, right? He has to respect his elders. That's a given. But once you get to know your elders, you make that decision whether they deserve to continue having your respect. You know, um, when it comes to food, I make sure that, you know, if you are going to go to your friend's house, the rule of thumb is you're going to eat whatever it is that they're serving. You're going to try it. And for that reason, he's got an amazing palate for just a little 12 year old, you know. Um, I've also taught him that, you know, damn it, you're not going to put me in, a, in an assisted living home or a, you know, a nursing home when I get older. <laughs> um, you're going to take care of me. And, and he, that is so ingrained in him that I feel like, you know, I'm going to be taken care of when I get older. And I think when you, when it comes to raising kids, you have to find that balance because in the Vietnamese culture, we don't show our affection. We don't say, I love you. We don't encourage, you know, our kids and, and give them confidence or individuality because we don't want them to have a head full of ego. But I think that depending on where you are living, you kind of have to assimilate and culturize yourself um, because that's a survival mechanism for them. Um, so yeah, with, with raising kids, I try to instill a little bit of the Asian culture and traditions, but also understand that he's got a whole different world that he's dealing with that I had to, you know, from what I had to deal with. Yeah, so I, I probably won't touch too much on filial piety because as Amy mentioned, it's probably going to be similar across, uh, across all of our, across all of the Asian cultures that we're speaking about today. Uh, but I, so maybe some other things that are important when raising kids, my parents really emphasize education and doing a, you know, doing a good job in school, not, not in a way that was, um, once again, pushy or uh, unrealistic, but it was, it was an agreement between my parents and I, they said, we will let you pursue whatever you want to do. We'll be very liberal with, you know, you going out and, you know, all the things that the activities that you can get up to so long as at the end of every term, when that report card comes home, it's good grades. I think there are like, I don't know if it's similar for everyone growing up with like within an Asian family, but my family was very, very good on that. So they said they made me want to do well in school because the better I did, the more freedom I had. <laughs> so and actually, I, and actually Angela, I mean, from a non, coming from a non-Asian family, that was basically kind of how my, my parents raised me, basically that, you know, we'll support you, but you have to do well. If you don't do well, then we're going to intervene and make sure you do well. <laughs> I'm not um, sure that's across the board, board, you know, mainstream American, but I know at least my family and to my other friends, they were very more strict on that in that, you know, we'll support you with what you want to do, but you need to do well. That was kind of a commonality I noticed here as well. Yeah. So I would, I, I really like that about the way my parents raised my brother and I, and another thing that I would say that's important in my in, within Filipino culture, like family is a big deal, right? So I would say that parents are probably more involved in their kids' lives later on. So I would, in the West, it seems like when you turn 18, that's kind of like your parents wash their hands clean of you. And then it's whatever you get up to is you. But um, my parents are still very much a part of my regular day-to-day -day life and not by, and that's something that I appreciate. Like I am very close to my parents. Um, and I think that them, like parents trying to sort of adjust to the way that their kids are growing up, there's, is something that 
maybe happens in the Philippines, or at least for my family, like in order to maintain that sort of close relationship with the kids, my parents have also evolved alongside us. So the views that they had about, um, you know, what's expected of a daughter or a son that they had like 10 years ago completely changed with the older my brother and I got. So I've been very lucky in that sense. But yeah, probably education and yeah, just being a good like respectful in general not just to elders but just being respectful and if you have an opinion to share it in a polite manner or to be you know cognizant of your surroundings so that you don't come off as tone deaf just essentially just not always thinking about yourself but thinking about how you um how you interact with other people and how that affects uh, them as well so those were like some of the important things that I was raised with yeah I think uh for me <clears throat> growing up in an English home and a Japanese home, uh, manners are, are very important um, to me. And I think I will try and stress the importance of that to my kids. But at the same time, I think, yeah, balance. You've got to find the balance between knowing when to use the carrot and when to use the stick and try and gain as much understanding. Because as Amy said, your children will go through world, a world that could be vastly different to your own. So if, unless you you can't just, well, this is the way it was done for me. So this is the way it's going to be for you, because I don't think that's necessarily going to work in in uh, most cases. But I'm not a dad, so I can't really speak to, these are all nice ideas that I have in my head. But when reality hits, who knows how it's going to be. Ah, uh, well, Callum, you might be a dad sooner than you think. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> My parents, I'm the oldest, so I think that the way I was raised as being the oldest may, plays more of a part than my heritage. My parents place a lot of emphasis on good grades just like uh for the rest of you guys but being the oldest they were the strictest with me they were super strict and they were really lax with my two siblings sorry mom that's um, a trend i've noticed across uh, with a lot of people i know yeah yeah and they expected me to like to basically be like the third parent so when my parents like went out on dates i would watch my siblings um, my mom relies on me to help out a lot even today when we go on family vacations she relies on me to help like plan it and to help get it together um she relies on me to help help out around the house and other stuff so my mom treats me like once I became an adult, my mom started treating me more and more like an adult, but she always had like these expectations for me to kind of be the one like in charge. And I think because of that, my my two siblings are closer. And um, cause like I have to be the bad guy sometimes. And they also went to the same school and they have more in common. So the two of them are a lot closer than they are with me. And I think part of it's being the oldest, but let's see. Yeah, it's just like good grades. Um, one thing that my parents always made sure to do was to tell me that they loved me because my mom grew up and my dad without being told that. Uh, yeah, my parents never, never say that. Yeah, and so like I'm a very emotional person, so I I tell Calum I love you like at least a hundred times a day, <laughs> and whenever I talk to my parents on the phone, I was like love you, love you, love you, and even like my some, like my friends, I Facetime them, we say goodbye. I'm like okay, bye, love you. I say it to my dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like when I have kids, I want them 
I'm going to say that to them all the time. It's just like, I need to, I express my love through my words. And also I'm like kind of scared to have kids because I don't want to mess them up. And I'm very determined to raise them as like a huge feminist. So <laughs> I'm like, you have kids in Japan because you don't get any medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I will not give birth here. Like the day, like one day, if I ever become pregnant, I'm, if I'm in Japan still, I'm leaving. <laughs> Also, Amy, uh, your son Preston is so cute. I love it whenever you post pictures of him. He is so adorable. He's going to be so handsome when he's older. I can already tell. <laughs> That's how I feel about your mom. Your mom's just beautiful. She's like this, the Audrey Hepburn, right? Like, she's just amazing and gorgeous. And I can't wait to, for her to finish her book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's still working on it. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think my parents raised me pretty well, you know, obviously no one's perfect. So there's been complaints along the way, but um, I think they did like a better job than like parents that are bad parents. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know. They're very supportive. They're very supportive and they find ways to be proud of us. And um... well, I remember when I grew up, my parents always encouraged me to just do well in school, just focus on doing my homework. And my parents uh, are farmers. They could, they could have used me to help around the farm, but they did not. They, they just tell me to doing your homework, doing your, your work, and just, you know, keep up with school and all that. So I feel like I'm so blessed that my, my parents always value education. So that's something a little bit different everybody else has similar background, similar situation when your parent raised you. I don't have much else to add to that. So, you know, as I say, yeah, educa education, you know, respect, manners, mm -hmm. and then, and also I think just, you know, trying to promote good behavior and a sense of like, you know, we want you to be successful. Those are all common fact, common factors I see with everyone here, including, including my own family dynamic. Yeah, be polite, be polite, kind, and respect the elders, and, you know, all of you already said all those things. So we are the same thing. We, our culture is so similar. No, I think that a lot of these values, to whatever extent, they're all, I think, useful, and they should, and children should be, you know, exposed to them and taught them, because you know, I encounter people sometimes that are, like, especially children that are very disrespectful. And I'm just like, what? Yeah, it's like, especially, you know, especially some places I've been in the U S and I'm just like, that kid did not just say that. What now? And it's just kind of like, where, where are, their, his parent, are their parents not teaching them anything? It's, you know, and I'm not the one to judge because I'm, I'm, I don't have any kids myself, but it's just kind of like, there's some things that like, my God, if I did that, my mom would murder me. <laughs> you know, or, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully things will improve. And I think parenting is one of the most important things, you know, because a lot of kids just do not have good parenting, you know, and that causes a lot of other problems, which leads to both societal, economic, and many other issues. Yeah, the one important thing that my parents impressed upon me was that there was no doubt to show that they didn't love me. Although they did not express, they did not say much, I love you, but there is no question. There's no question in my mind that my parents never loved me. 
So it it it's all given. So I feel so secure, so loved. So um, I think if we just instill that love in the children, when you have your own children, that is so powerful. When when um, everything turned upside down in my country, that strong love that I was receiving when I grew up, that sustained me. That keep me alive, keep me not to give up, not to give in, keep me fighting for my life. So, um, yeah, the instill the strong love for the, the younger generation so that they can have that self-esteem, you know, they feel their own worth, that they are worthy, um, they are loved, they are secure. No, very well said. And that's one thing I think is very important. You know, kids need to have self-esteem and a sense of who they are and a sense of value because I know a lot of, when I was in China, a lot of, a lot of students that I encountered, it's like they didn't have those because they were just constantly told you need to do better. You, need to improve, you know, that's not good enough. Keep going. And some of the people, some of the kids that I taught, they would kind of open up to me because, you know, about that. And it was kind of, it was quite sad because, you know, they talk about they're under so much pressure, they have to do this and that. And I'm not saying it's this across the board, but I did encounter that quite often. But so anyway, and this is uh, kind of moving on. These two questions that I've thought of kind of go in tandem. And, you know, they're, first of all, I would say, what are some of the benefits of having a multicultural background and at the same time, maybe disadvantages? Mm. I know this could probably write a tapestry. I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet. (laughs) The the advantages, the advantages I would say, or the benefits would be obviously diversity, right? Um, Culture and exposure to different way of life. You've got food, you've got music, you've got fashion, you've got so many different aspects of different cultures that you can embrace. Um, the disadvantage, I think, of having a multicultural background would be the pressure to assimilate to whatever um, country you're in to succeed and achieve, and achieve that status quo um, in order to feel normal. And I think when you do that, you lose your identity and your heritage and the deterioration of mental health comes into play because you don't know who you are. That's what I have to say. Um, Amy's kind of very succinctly summarized, I think, what a lot of people with multicultural backgrounds experience when they're growing up and not even growing up, but even as adults sort of having to uh, come to terms with what your identity is and whatnot. But I would say that one of the things I love most about having a multicultural background is sort of, um, at least for me, the independence that it brings and the, the comfort, like how comfortable um, I am and people who have who have come from similar backgrounds are with sort of just going out and exploring on your own. Um, so prior to this entire pandemic, I think mo- like our generation was lucky enough to be able to make like, you know, take advantage of cheap flights. So being able to go to different countries and sort of just embed yourself within new places, um, come, like without fears or without necessarily um these expectations and just really like you know absorb everything that you see so I think that my multicultural background firstly made me more willing to do that and also just strong enough to do that without the fear of you know what other what people normally associate with like a young woman traveling on her own for example um 
And I think when during my travels, I was also told by a friend that I just look generically Southeast Asian. So it's one of those things that when I go to any country within Asia, I'm normally just assumed to be a local. Uh, so I think that's been once again, that my multicultural background makes that feeling very uh, welcoming because as Amy mentioned, it's quite difficult for me to say like I'm from one place or another. So being able to being just assumed to be a local is always like a nice thing. Um, and yeah, I don't know, it's in disadvantages. I think other than the identity, it also just means that your friends are normally all across the world. So like my best friends live across like four continents and it's it's difficult to be able to see them so like see them even under normal circumstances just because flights are expensive all of that so uh that's one of the disadvantages is that you you're exposed to all these different cultures and all these new people but then actually being able to uh, have roots somewhere to like build a build a foundation for a long-term yeah long-term life (laughs) are probably a little bit less just because um the nature of like of traveling and moving around a lot uh yeah i guess i i'm sort of rehashing what amy and angela have said but the the access to more than one community i think has been big for me you know like i feel a sense of connection with english people with japanese people but also other half uh maybe not the same combination but like could be half well one of the guys I know is like half half Jamaican half English and there is that sense of connection there that I wouldn't get to experience if I was only part of one community disadvantages I mean I can't really think of too many aside from the identity one which I think is a big issue uh, because it's all well and good being having access to multiple communities but if you don't believe if you don't feel like you belong to any one of them that has got to be quite a difficult thing to deal with so being like super mixed race Japanese Hawaiian Irish Scottish Norwegian German and French because both my parents are half um, and then living in all these other countries I feel like I can fit in anywhere one thing I love is diversity which I didn't realize until I moved to Japan because everywhere else I've lived has been really diverse and I see more diversity in Tokyo, but Nagoya, it was like mostly like, I'm gonna say 1% yeah, was non-Japanese. Yeah. And um, so like diversity, that's one of the reasons I made this move here to Tokyo because I was really missing out on the diversity. And I think that like one huge advantage to being multicultural is that you're more open-minded. Because what I have found is that I have friends who have never left one place and they are very close-minded and they have parents who are close-minded. I had a friend once, her dad was like, why do you always go to Europe? He's like, there's so many great things in America. Why would you go to Ireland? Why, like what's in Ireland? I've never heard someone speak about Ireland like that because everyone loves Ireland. It's beautiful. And I was like, this man sitting here with his big gulp has never left this, this state, I feel, mm-hmm. or this country. Um, and I think that because I have all these different backgrounds and I've lived in all these different places that I am a lot more open-minded 
And I've gotten so much more open-minded as I've gotten older and as I've lived in these other places. And it's really interesting to see the ways that like people's lives are so different, but like people are also the same, if that makes sense. Like uh, Japan is so different from the US, but I have Japanese friends. I find things to bond over. Side note, Japanese people think I'm hilarious, which I really love. um, I think it's because I have a big personality and they're more reserved. Um, I would say disadvantages, my disadvantages, one is like Angela's, me and Angela met through one of our best friends who lives in London. And we would never have met through Alex and he lives in London, I'm in Japan, Angela is in the Philippines. Is that Alex right there? Like that's like Alex and I, yeah, on like hanging out on his bed, doing what we normally like, getting up to no good in London during our uni days. Um, yeah, and so they met in uni, and me and him met during our masters after Angela was in Singapore, and I met her through a picture in his room. It was like a framed picture of her and his her mom, <laughs> yeah, which I left with Alex, like because my parents insisted when they dropped me off in London that. I needed to have family photos in my apartment. Uh, So when I left, I was like, I'm leaving to go back to my family. So I don't need these photos. So I left them with Alex because he was like, he met my, he's met my mom and they get on really well too. So Yeah. And the only reason me and Angela met is because Angela was in Seattle sometimes randomly. And that was when I was living in Seattle. So Alex was like, you guys got to hang out. And then we did. And then we got matching tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, it it went by, it all went very quickly. It was just like, Hey, our, like, we have a common best friend. Therefore we're going to be really good friends. And luckily it worked out. It worked out well. But then like the other big disadvantage for me is really unique. Being Hapa, just half Asian, I am not Hapa like all my Hapa friends. Like Callum, like I have so many Hapa friends. They all have one Asian parent and one white parent. So they have more of a connection to their Asian sides. And usually, not all the times, but usually they can speak the language. And it just feels really lonely because the only other people who experience that that I know are my siblings, but my siblings are both really American and we don't really talk about it. Um, And so I feel like I don't completely belong anywhere either. While I can, while I can belong to places because I get along well with all different types of people, I never really feel like I ever truly belong with one racial group, if that makes sense. Because even with all of my Hoppa friends, I'm still not Hoppa like they are. So there's not really people around who understand what it's like for me as much. And I always wish that I grew up speaking a second language, which is why I learned French. Because I was always so jealous of all of my friends who had like parents who were more like first or second generation immigrants. And they, I'd go over to their house and they'd all be like, blah, 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 blah. And I'd be so jealous. And Callum's family all speaks Japanese at home. His dad works for a Japanese company. Um, and I'll just like sit there and they'll all be like saying stuff in Japanese. And sometimes his mom forgets that I can't speak it and she'll speak to me in Japanese. <laughs> So I have to get better at Japanese so I can hang out with his mom more because she's really cool. So that's my big disadvantage, yeah. Yeah, for me, <clears throat> understanding I had a different background before I moved to America, at first it's very awkward because the language and the tradition and the everything else is different. But only a short time after I 
become familiar the way with the way they live, the way of their lifestyle and everything. I get assimilated, you know, slowly, slowly. I cannot say quick, <laughs> but I make things like I make fun of myself. It's, you know, sometimes when I go shop for look for apartment, and then everything is like above my head. All the the shell and everything is so high because they make it for tall American. And here I am, like four, <laughs> four eleven. So <laughs> I make fun with all those challenges all the time. So you know, you cannot take it too seriously. <laughs> you, you said it there yeah, yeah we have to be able to laugh at ourselves and also if you take if if you take things consistently too seriously <laughs> it's just gonna run into the ground you gotta be you gotta have flexibility and just a sense of humor yeah some some of you one of you mentioned about santa yeah my first christmas i receive a lot of gifts from santa i said who's santa why <laughs> 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 yeah that was me too <laughs> i just you can cut this out sean but i just want to share that the, the same like the same year i found out about santa was also the year that i found out santa didn't exist because i told my parents about santa and i was like how come i've never been told to give like to write a letter to santa about what i want so my parents were like okay this year why don't you write a note to santa so i did put it in my stocking and then on christmas day when i checked the stocking there was what I know, like for a fact, to be a leftover gift that my mom, uh, other multicultural background, like didn't like wasn't able to give to another child. So <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I got the gift, I just looked down at it and I looked up at her and I was like, "Santa's not real." Is <laughs> and then my parents were like, "We tried, you know, like we tried, we figured it out." And I was like, "You guys didn't really try." <laughs> but um, yeah. So Santa was like a like a just like a flash in the pan for me. But I can oh. say I can say this that having a different background, different tradition, and everything, the best thing for us is pick up the the good one. Just pick the pick the good one from wherever we were, and then make it our own. We don't have to adopt a hundred percent of anything. No, that's a great point. I think it's and that speaks to having maybe an eclectic mindset, taking the best of everything. You know, like it doesn't matter where it's from, but if it works and it complements your life and those around you or what, 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 what other, whatever other purpose, why not? Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if one tradition, it, it's good, keep it. We don't have to throw away everything. And it's, I find that when, when things mix, new things are made, more interesting things come about, you know, it's the cultural diffusion. That's always been a very prominent theme throughout history and that, you know, cultures mix, new developments, new new innovations. You know, it's a it's a catalyst for change and development. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, that leads that leads on to my last que- last question, and that would be: Is what do you want others to know about your your culture, heritage, ancestry, and, or ways of doing things? You know, if there are a few things, or uh, maybe a few things you want to say specifically that you want to know people that are maybe not as familiar or don't know much about your your ancestry and dynamic, what, what would that be? I think if, uh, if anything, we know that all Asians are not the same. <laughs> if you've been listening to part one and part two of this podcast, 
um, all Asians are not the same. And I think there are over 20, maybe Asian races, different races, uh, ethnicities um, within the AAPI community. And so I would like to say that, you know, in the United States anyway, we don't learn about the Asian history. Uh, we barely learn about the black history. You know, it's a very white lens here. And so I would encourage people to try to understand more about the, the history of the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Um, we had the, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which nobody learns about. We had lynchings um, in Chinatown that nobody knows about. We had the Japanese internment camps that get swept underneath the rug, right? We have the railroads that were built on the hard backs and, and hands of the Chinese. My final thought as we close up is that we, as a race, as an ethnicity, as a culture, we are not the virus. We are not a virus. We have aspirations and dreams, just like everybody else does. We, um, we don't want to be judged. Whatever your limited interactions are with the Asian community, I would encourage you to step outside of that ignorance and that bigotry and, and learn more about each other, not just the Asian community, right? every community, because together we're in this together. And I think um, in order to advance, in order to find peace, in order to find harmony, we need to have this cultural exchange. And this is why I think this platform that you are providing, Sean, is, is pivotal and important and profound. Um, and I hope we can do more of this, not just for the Asian community, for the Black community, for every community. Um, so I'm going to get emotional. So <laughs> I'm just going to stop there and let... Uh, let Angela talk next. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it, Amy. And, you know, it's doing, doing episodes like this that really just, you know, further f- or further my resolve to try to build up more, you know, awareness, you know, not just because basically, you know, like I mentioned earlier is that, you know, we're all, we're all interconnected and it's just a matter of like, you know, don't just assume and take things for granted about because you've been told this, you've been told that from people just around you take the time and initiative to explore and learn for yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, Sean, Amy, you guys both said what I was hoping to say, which is just that, you know, every, at the end of the day, we're all just people, right? So although our heritage and, and our upbringings influence, uh, you know, about how we live our lives at the end of the day, we're all just human and we're, we're all kind of pursuing the same things, which I'm sure like, you know, stability, happiness, whatever it may be. Uh, so when it comes to, I'm going to speak particularly to Filipino culture and Indonesian culture as well. But I think with Filipino culture, I think it's, it would be great if people expanded their ideas of what a Filipino can be because in the States and everywhere I am, so certain things about our personality and I'm in Asia as well. There are very distinct stereotypes about what a Filipino person likes about how they behave about their traditions and their cultures and the country is much more than karaoke and things like that. So I would, I would say that for, for in Filipino culture, that would probably be something that I would hope other people would pay more attention to, that there's more to uh, the community than just these specific, very, very specific stereotypes and maybe don't open, open a conversation by asking someone things based just on those stereotypes. Uh, and then for Indonesia, I would say that it's, you know, Indonesia is the biggest um, Muslim country in the world in terms of size, not in terms of percentage, but in terms of sizing is the fourth largest country in the world. And I think they have the most number of Muslims in one place. And I think 
when it comes to like when it comes to perceptions of what Indonesia is and what Indonesian people are like, I feel like a lot of the rhetoric that's being said about you know, religious extremism gets tied into uh, the country, and that's not just Indonesia everywhere, and that's you know it's to be expected. But I guess my urge for the audience and whoever, for whoever is listening is to sort of you know try and look into it a little bit more. You know, there are there are resources that talk about the history of these countries and about, you know, what what people are like there. And and it's just about keeping an open mind. I think it's super important, not only for your own growth, but also for shaping a better world for everyone. We all need to understand each other in order to work together. And you said it, Angela, having an open mind. For me, I mean, I can't really add much more to what you guys have already said. Um, but looking at it from a Japanese and English perspective, I think both cultures could really benefit from taking parts. So, for example, Japan, heavily community oriented, which means no one wants to, uh, you know, inconvenience anyone else. You have low crime. People wear masks. People wear masks all the time. You're always considering your neighbor. But on the other hand, you have a common Japanese expression, which is the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. And if you're... If you don't fit into the box that society has for you, it can be incredibly isolating. So I think good thing about England and Western culture is that, you know, individualism is, is also something to be celebrated. You know, you are your own person. Um, you don't, you should feel happy in who you are and you don't necessarily need to feel that society is, is pressing you down. So I would like to see a bit more, maybe a bit more exchange and so, so that we can find a place in the middle. But, um, you said, I think, yeah, because I think a middle ground is actually potentially the healthiest, where you have, where both are respected, but in, as an individual, you're able to kind of flourish and develop, but at the same time, you're still considerate and care about society. But at the same time, you're not, completely ignoring society or you're not just completely focusing on yourself. So it's, yeah. so I think actually, you know, kind of a, a blending of, as you mentioned, I think it's going to be very useful because I know a lot of people in the U S they're just completely into themselves. It just, it's a little too extreme. Whereas like you said, in Japan, it's almost too much. They focus so much on the, on the community. They neglect themselves. Yeah. Um, I agree with Angel on the stereotypes because I get stereotyped a lot. Also, please people stop asking me, what are you? Because I'm ethnically ambiguous and I get that all the time. It's super <laughs> annoying. Ask it in a nicer way. <laughs> the two things I want to point out. One, Hawaii is not supposed to be a state in the U.S. The U.S. illegally annexed it. I don't eat Dole products because John Dole was the guy who did it. His cousin is the one who started that. I have like a whole rant about this. Anyway, Hawaiian culture is like, it was like its own country. It was a kingdom. It had its own country. And the U.S. came over and they took it over because of the resources. And they wanted to use it as like a naval base and blah, 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 classic imperialism. So like, that's one thing I need people to understand is that, and I think most people do, but just like to reiterate, um, Hawaii was never supposed to be a state. You know, it was its own country. Being attached to the US now probably gives it more of a financial benefit, like how Scotland is still attached to the UK, even though they wanted to leave it, although Brexit has kind of messed everything up. But, you know, usually now I think some smaller places are better attached to bigger ones financially. Um, Hawaiian is like a unique culture and you can be ethnically Hawaiian. 
Um, also, the Japanese American camps, um, we need to know more about that. My family was in those camps. The Japanese American community is actually moving away from using the word internment. I'm writing a paper about the terminology, um, which Amy, I'll send to you once it's finally published. With, that's like a very interesting conversation that I was unaware of until February. Um, I was still calling them internment camps and internment, and that is still the word most commonly used um, when you Google it. But the leaders of the Japanese American community are wanting us to move away from it because they think it's a euphemism. Well, it is, it is a euphemism for what happened. They like to use the words concentration camp, which I do not like to use because I'm a historian. I studied the Holocaust. Um, I've also studied the camps. The camps were 100% concentration camps, but that term has become synonymous with the Nazi death camps. So there's like all of this stuff going on in the Japanese American community about terminology right now. Um, you can still say internment if you want. Um, I don't personally have a problem with it, but I feel like because I've done all this research, I can't say it. So I don't really know what to call them at this point in time because I don't like using the word concentration camp. I'll use it if I'm trying to make a point on occasion, but it's, it's such a strong word. And it was really bad what happened, but people were not being like, like syst systematically murdered in these camps. Um, you can't really compare them, I think. And I think by calling them concentration camps, it draws a comparison. Yeah, and it definitely demonstrates how the word use and symbolism changes over time. And that's something that is a common theme, especially like, you know, you said, I'm also my undergrads in history too. So that's another thing you kind of see how things and how certain symbol symbols or terms that may have had a very either positive or negative, they can flip just because of one event or because of how they're used at one period in, in time. Yeah, yeah. So I did like a bunch of research on it. I can send you guys my article once it's done. Um, we can read about all the research I did. I spoke to many Japanese Americans. I spoke to Jewish people. I spoke to organizations and the leaders in the organizations and did like polls. And the Japanese American community is kind of split, but the leaders of the community want us to move away from it. And most of the Jewish people I spoke to didn't care about. They were like, if you explain it and this and that, then it's okay. But some people were like, I know people who would not like that. So it's just like a whole thing about the terminology, which I'm trying to call more attention to right now, because a lot of people are learning more and more about the camps. And so I think they should try and learn about the terminology too. So I call them the camps. I'll call them the wartime camps. I'll call them like prison camps, maybe. Like I'll slip up sometimes and say internment. I'll use concentration camp if I'm trying to be strong. Yeah, I think it kind of come in the last comment I'll say on this is I think that whenever you're learning about something, I think it's always important to come at it from a, a neutral perspective and trying to withhold bias because that always causes issues. So and that's difficult because everyone is naturally biased on any topic. Yeah. And those camps really define my legacy. When I was in France, I would get asked because most of the immigrants in France were second generation and I'm like fourth. And they'd say, oh, you're so many things. Can you speak Japanese? Can you speak all those languages? And I got really good at explaining the camps in French to them, being like, this is why I can't speak Japanese because the Japanese was not passed down by my grandma because she was imprisoned in this camp when she was a teenager. 
And uh, so I was able to spread awareness to French people, which was pretty cool. So yeah, it's like, it's had like a big legacy with my family. Um, and it's interesting because it seems like with my family, it didn't like brutally affect them in the same way that other people who talk about it have been affected. So there's like all this new research coming out that I'm finding out about right now. I did my senior, my undergrad senior thesis on it. And there's a lot more stuff I'm learning now um, from sources we didn't have before. So before it seems like everything was kind of general, like the Japanese were like really like they were okay with it. It was fun, whatever, like we're patriots. And I'm finding out more and more that it wasn't like that there was split. There were people murdered in the camps by the guards. We didn't know about that. My sources before said no one was killed, but a source recently came out and said, this guy was out walking his dog and the prison guard killed him. And so I'm finding out more and more and there's like a big diversity and nuance in this history that I didn't know about that I thought I was a bit of an expert about. So as you said, like history is always more stuff's coming out about. So I would say educate yourself on the camps and follow Densho. Densho is like a big organization for them. And they're the ones who are pushing like the concentration camp terminology and stuff. Not I want to say pushing, encouraging, encouraging the use of the concentration camp terminology. Well, yeah. that uh, brought, bring to my attention, I lived in the, that type of camp. Mm-hmm during the uh, Khmer Rouge regime. So in my book, I wrote, I, I call it a work camp, a work camp, and sometimes I call it forced labor, a forced labor camp when when people with a gun and, and watch over you all the time and force you to work extremely long hours under the heat and give you very little food to eat and you become exhausted exhausted and starve and then sick and then die. So that's, that camp, I call it forced labor camp. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it's, it's a, a useful terminology for you or not, but um, <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's my situation. I was in that camp. But to, to finalize our conversation, I would say um, I would like to see many of us to adopt the middle ground, like um, like you both were talking, instead of totally depend on the community or totally independent. The middle ground is the family. The family unit is so wonderful. First, you build your strong family unit, and then you also need to connect very well with the community in your area. So I think that will be a nice transition because if you cannot have peace in your own family, you cannot have peace in the community and you cannot have peace within yourself. So um, that's my belief. And I think that can be a, a middle ground solution. No, I, I definitely agree. I think, as I mentioned earlier, you need to cut, you need to look at things just as, as neutral as possible because you know, there's, everyone has a different point of view and everyone can tell you things based on their own point of view. And, you know, a lot of people's truth, the truths and what they feel about things, it's influenced by their experiences, you know, what they're told, what they're, what they're educated on. And of course, their own point of view on it based on so many different, different, different factors. And I would say influencing points, you know, so that's why 
10 people can tell you 10 different stories about the same thing. And that's something that you definitely you just look at the situation with politics and a lot of the things, which I will not go into on this episode, but you'll get so many different points of view on the same thing. And talking about the same topic, it sounds like two different things, depending on who you talk to and what they, what they stress or what they leave out. Yeah. Yeah. Just read any social media comments <laughs> on anything. <laughs> yes that's uh social media i mean it's a great tool but at the same time it's also a very divisive tool <laughs> yeah it's, it's you know just like any just like anything and just like you know you know it's it's neutral by itself it just depends on how it's used i think sorry just as an example amy i i'm assuming you've been to vietnam since you initially left and have uh, did you go to the war museums when you were there yeah so I did. I was there in November of 2018, I want to say, 2018. Uh, first time I went to the Vietnam War Museum there, or American War, as they call it there. It was interesting because I took my honorary dad, who was a Vietnam War veteran who served in the Army. Um, it was his first trip back, and he was just so emotional. My thing was that a lot of it was propaganda, but a lot of it was also very good information what hit me the hardest was the agent orange part of the museum so yeah i would encourage you know anybody to to visit cambodia japan whatever and 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 go to these museums and educate themselves but also keep an open mind in terms of the propaganda and the country that you're in (laughs) i I was i was about the reason i bring it up is because we were all told that like history is written by the winners right so I think that with the Vietnam Vietnam War in particular, I mean, we were raised, having been raised and educated with the Western education, we're taught one specific thing about the Vietnam War and then going to Vietnam and going to that museum and seeing that, you know, the Americans are regularly and referred to as imperialists and uh, you know, evil people. It's, it's a very interesting uh, experience and kind of shows you just how differently stories can be told depending on where you are that's also a very common thing in in china as well about like korean korea and because my great-grandfather fought in both korea and vietnam he actually between the two he was in both countries combined for five years so you know and and also hearing from a veteran's perspective the country's perspective all those different perspectives the more you kind of get it kind of builds an interesting perspective on each of their shared experiences from being on the ground you know politically on the political side all these things it's just very you know can it, it just it's you know i think it's important to look at everything don't just look at one you have to look at everything yeah you got to educate yourself i mean the ignorance is on you right if <laughs> you gotta yeah education and, and just like everything you know not everyone has the full story and nor will they ever yeah and you have to be open to it because so many people who are ignorant about something if you're trying to tell them their first response is to get defensive and nasty and so many people just refuse to like teach themselves you're gonna have to train yourself because i think it's human nature to mm-hmm. it's like human nature to be selfish it's human nature to be like upset if someone tells you that you're wrong uh so well, like, and like, and like yeah exactly and i think Whenever you're talking with someone and you're debating or, or having an in-depth discussion, if they get real defensive, that mean that usually is because they're 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 afraid because they cannot counter that. They don't have something to come back. It's like they they resort to that to try to, you know, kind of get around or get around the impediment. And I'm like, okay, I'm not trying to offend you, but I'm just 
making my point, but why mm-hmm. are you getting defensive? And I think that's kind of a coping mechanism a lot of people have, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think, yeah, just a little bit more. I think people need to get used to being uncomfortable because I think all, when you're confronted with things that are different, it is what it's not that you become defensive because you are uncomfortable. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that part of, you know, it all feeds in, right? So that's why people try and box you into one specific thing. Like, are you Asian? Are you American? Are you this? Or are you that? Because by, if they can tether you to something, then that makes their understanding of you less intimidating and less uncomfortable. So I think that's something that people need to get used to is to be uncomfortable and to not be afraid of being uncomfortable. You, you will, you will make mistakes. Not everyone is perfect. If you're learning about something new, you're, you are going to have slip ups. You might refer to someone incorrectly. You might say the wrong thing, but as long as, yeah, once again, just being open to making those mistakes and, you know, understanding that if you are self-aware about it, people aren't going to attack you for it because you can, they can see that you're making an effort. Yeah. I think another thing that's, important though is like if you are educating someone about something you need to be patient when i wrote my article about what i called the internment camps i was i was pretty nastily attacked on instagram over it these and it was it was really upsetting and these people had no patience they were not nice to me about it only one of them was japanese um and I just think that like the people who know more, we need to have patience with people who don't. Like we can't just automatically assume, oh, you're a bad person because you don't know this. And it's your fault that you didn't know it because you didn't educate yourself about this. And the fact that you're explaining why you didn't know it, just showing blah, 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 blah. You know, it's really, there's so much like viciousness um, that comes with it hand in hand too. And I think that we need to, we ourselves, when we're trying to educate people, we need to have the patience and understanding that everyone learns at different speeds. And so it's like, that's on both sides. There was like a Malcolm X quote I heard recently about it that I don't remember, but (laughs) (laughs) I heard it recently on one of my history podcasts and it was about like ignorance and how everyone it takes it's it takes everyone like a different way to get to i think callum's googling it right now actually <laughs> malcolm x quote on ignorance. Well, you know what T- to angela's point is it's good that we're uncomfortable because that's how we grow and develop and get enlightened um i recently watched an episode on red table talk with jada pinkett smith and uh that was powerful you know it and she really brought all the right people to that table to talk about um, discrimination and bigotry. Um, and at the end of the day, all of them walked away understanding a little bit more about the dynamics of the cultures um, and the races that we we live with, you know. And so, I I encourage people to be uncomfortable. That's how we grow. Mm-hmm. It, you know and. And I had, and I, in China, I had some discussions about, you know, like geopolitics and stuff with some people who were, you know, like very much anti-U.S. like that. And I wouldn't, I would always try to like, you know, bite my tongue in a way, but at the same time, you know, they say, oh, this has been like, well, this is what you're, this is what you've been taught and everything, but just know that there are a lot of places that are not like this and they have a different point. And I was not trying to tell them they were wrong, just trying to show them that, look, not everyone's going to look at this, this way and nor can you expect they to do this. Just like where I'm from, 
you know, that there's like they have people with the same mentality as you do. But if you guys actually meet and talk and actually just, you know, not attack each other verbally, just hear each other out, you might get to know where each other's coming from and what they're staying, you know, and why they think the way they do. Now, yeah. Now I'll say, yeah, I'll say like with China to an extent, you know, there is a little more. I think political education, I, I dare say propaganda at play there, but that's everywhere. It just it takes different forms, nationalism, populism, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I was going to say, I think it's important that we know that like not everyone is good or bad. You can't just like, I see that all the time, like in cancel culture, obviously like Harvey Weinstein deserved to be canceled, but um, with other people who said something one time in their past that they probably don't feel anymore, uh, you can't just like write someone off as a bad person because they didn't know any better or because they used to be like that, but they've changed. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think we need to all think that like people, <laughs> that people are not inherently bad, inherently good. There are some evil people out there like serial killers and Hitler and whatever, but you know, most people, most people, I think we need to try and give compassion. Yeah. Compassion too. And uh, what's it called? That other saying, I can't speak English. Um, <laughs> oh, benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Yeah. No, I think both are useful. And also, I think we need to learn to be more empathetic. That's very important, you know, because, you know, empathetic, don't assume that you know, I can go on forever. But I think all of these things are important. And I know we've kind of draw, drawn away from our final topic, but I think it's all very important in encapsulating a lot of what we've been discussing about what we want people to know, you know, just not, you know, just as, you know, the premise about from different, eight, different cultural backgrounds. It's just that leads into so many other things as we've discussed. All these things are important. And everyone, as my grandfather, who's a professor, says knowledge is power. So I think, and I completely agree with that adage. You know, the more educated you are, the, the better you are. But you can't just be blindly educated. You have to have a purpose with education. You have to learn how to use it and how to embed yourself with it. You can't just learn random information and expect that to benefit you. Can we just say that we all laughed because of Angela's cat and not because of what Malia was talking about? Because oh yeah, in case that this is just audio. The listeners are going to be like, "Wow, we're all laughing at a serious conversation topic." Um, sorry. Well, thank well, everyone. Listening, just think of the pandemic. We're all at home on at home talking about this. So of course, if we have pets, other things, we're going to be un. Un, undetermined distractions or <laughs> unforeseen things that come up. So I think it's perfectly understandable. And plus it makes things more interesting. <laughs> in closing, I really appreciate everyone you know, uh, taking part in this. And I find it very interesting, everything that I've learned tonight. And I think we've learned, you know, mutually about each other and a lot of different dynamics that we go through that we've discussed. It's all interesting. And I think anyone who listens to this can gain a lot of useful insight and then like, like Amy said, this is just, you know, this is just, you know, five different Asian, five, six plus Asian, different Asian cultures. There are so many others and so many others from different continents and regions that can be, you know, delved into, into this degree. And honestly, we've pretty much just hit the tip of the iceberg, I think, in terms of all these things. We could potentially do one episode on each and every one of these questions. Absolutely. Yes. Well, again, I just wanted to you know, express my sincere thanks for your time and all the insight. I think everyone who listens to this, as mentioned, will gain a lot of insight, and it'd be great to, um, cr to 
produce some other content or go on to other things with you or others that you would like me to, to uh, bring on. The more voices, the more opinions and perspectives, the better. And it just, like I said, furthers, furthers this podcast to bring on, you know, amazing people like yourself who have a great deal of insight to present. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Sean, thank for this you. platform. Yeah, thank you yeah, for, for having us. us. You're, you're, yeah, well, you're quite welcome. And thank you. And, you know, to my viewers, I hope you really enjoyed this episode, uh, part two of the part two of these two episodes. And uh, you can feel free to reach out to us. Let us know if you have any questions, thoughts, perspective. Just send us an email at internationalimmersionpodcast at gmail.com or check out our social media at on Facebook, International Immersion or Instagram page of the same name. And we'd be happy to hear your thoughts, comments, suggestions. And we're always looking for new voices and content. So we'd happily entertain any ideas for collaboration as well. And with that, we will see you on the next one. Take care and stay safe. It happens 